Welcome to Beyond the Ocean. Here's a clip from today's guests. There is a case, I think it's Cohen versus Brown University. It talks about implementing Title IX. And the university was trying to sort of weasel out of implementing Title IX. The court came back and, and, and the way they said it was, well, there's no, there's no women interested in it. So why should we have to you know, spend half of our money, our scholarship money, to give to girls when it's most of our athletes who apply are men? And the court said this, and it applies to surfing and it applies to surf parks. They said, interest and ability rarely develop in a vacuum. They evolve as a function of opportunity and experience. And so, you know, if you're not opening up and encouraging the young girls like you are the young boys, then, you know, if you don't support, if you don't nurture it, it'll just be more of the same and it'll take another 50 years, you know, to sort of get women surfing in surf parks. My first tube this morning, sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. Hey everyone, welcome back to Beyond the Ocean. I'm Chris Klusner. I'm so excited to bring you today's conversation with Miss Patty Panicha, who's one of the co-founders of Modern Day Professional Surfing in the late 70s alongside Fred Hemmings and Randy Rarick. Patty helped to launch the women's division and really served as a precursor to today's WSL. Patty is also one of the first six women to compete on the tour herself in 1976 and has some amazing yet somewhat scary stories to share about how female athletes were just treated much differently than the male athletes. Uh, Patty today is the co-chair of the board of directors for the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, SHAC. She's also an adjunct professor of law at Pepperdine in Malibu, where she teaches First Amendment law and employment discrimination. Today's conversation is really important for examining the past, the history of surfing, and some fun and exciting stories related to that, but also as a way to take some lessons learned from the past and apply those to the next 50 years of surf parks. So without further ado, please join me for this really important and wide-ranging conversation with Miss Patty Panicha. <laughs> Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yeah, really exciting to speak with you. And I'm excited to uh, have a bit of a wide-ranging conversation here about, about yourself, your, your work, and maybe we can start there, your work at Pepperdine. I've been at Pepperdine since 1987, part-time teaching law school. I started teaching First Amendment law, which I'm actually teaching this semester, and then I started teaching gender and law, sex discrimination, and uh, employment discrimination. It's an important topic, and I think more than ever, it's, I'm sure your classes are busy. It's a very important topic, and uh, I know you've also been very vocal about this uh, category. You've written a book about this. I know that was quite a while ago, but could you share a little bit what the book is about? The book is a handbook for women 
uh, in the workplace. It's, I don't think you can even buy it these days because it was published in 2000. It was a little ahead of its time, I think. <laughs> but uh, because I know when it came out, there was not a lot, you know, women's issues kind of, they ebb and flow. They ebb and flow. And at the time, people weren't as interested. As it. It's called Work Smarts for Women. Uh, the Essential Sex Discrimination Survival Guide. And it's just sort of teaching women in the workplace, you know, how to get through it when you encounter sex discrimination. One of the topics I did want to talk about was your role, literally, in founding surfing. You are one of the first professionals in surfing that happens to be a woman. And you've uh, had some struggles over the years in, in balancing the roles and views of sponsors and stakeholders. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your experience, your relationship with surfing. So let's start with where do you live and uh, when did you start surfing? I live in two places, although in this pandemic, I'm living in one. But uh, I, I live in Southern California because that's where I work. That's where my husband's job was. But I still have our family home in Wailua. It's on the North Shore of Oahu. And I consider that home. And we get back and forth a lot. And I spend many, many weeks and months there over the year. So um, I tend to do most of my surfing there. I get a little harder to be motivated it's when I'm here. But I do surf here. But yeah. And what, what initially drew you to surfing? When did you first pick up a surfboard? My gosh, it was actually before we moved to um, Hawaii. Uh, I was a little kid. I was eight, maybe nine years old. And my grandparents lived in Huntington Beach. And I used to go fishing with my grandma off the pier. And I would see the surfers down there. And I would watch them. And I would see what they did. And I would get to understand what the waves were doing. And and I, I, I sort of learned I, like almost like an early wave judgment, you know, mm-hmm. and then we'd go back, we'd catch the fish, we'd go home and she'd make them for lunch. They were these little baby halibut. And then I'd go back uh, to the ocean by myself. She'd let me go back down by myself. I guess it was a different world. This was the late 50s, early 60s. And I'd wait on the beach for guys to lose their board. And I'd say, I'd go grab their board and carry it out to them knee deep or whatever and say, can I try your board? <laughs> so that was quite a sad beginning, wasn't it? Because most of them said no. Before the times of leashes, and those are those big, heavy, wooden, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 30-pound surfboards as well. They had fiberglass, and it was the 60s. I know it's fiberglass, but not wood. And then when did you actually get your own board? When did you start getting out there yourself? What age I you? babysat, and I bought a board. And uh, it was $114. I don't know why I remember that. But my parents, then they brought me kicking and screaming to Hawaii. And I didn't want to go because my dad was working there and I was still young. After I figured it out, I really liked it. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, okay. But, you know, it was a, a better transition than where I grew up. Because where I grew up, it was inner city L.A., bad neighborhoods. So it can you imagine? What do you like? you know, East LA or the North Shore of Oahu, (laughs) you know. Yeah, I can only imagine. So how did that shift to Hawaii and, and, you know, being surrounded by surfing maybe even more frequently than when you were younger, how did that influence you and how did it really kind of ignite your passion? Because I think even from a very early age, you started getting into competitive surfing. Yeah, you know, I don't know why that happened. 
it just was the best thing I'd ever experienced, you know, and I had a, had a very narrow experience leading up to that, you know, very narrow world growing up where I did, you know, my parents were immigrants. I didn't really figure out a lot about the world, but when I got to Hawaii, especially and surfing and all that it offered and all those people having all that fun, and I just wanted to do it. I, I, you know, how does a surfer explain that? I don't know. It just happens. And I, it never occurred to me that there were only men, that I saw you guys doing it. I just thought that looks fun. I want to do that. And how about if you can recall the, uh, the first time you actually went out and competed, you know, the first contest you, you participated in, when was that? You know, you'd think I would know what my very first contest was. I just remember the early contests were, um, the early ones were HSA. You know, there used to be Hawaii Surfing Association, WSA, East Coast, and, and, and Gulf Coast. And so I think it was probably at uh, HSA, Haleiwa, because that's, that was near my house. So I probably was too, you know, didn't want to drive all the way into town, you know, Honolulu, my goodness. So I, it was probably one of those. I remember surfing in a lot of those. And also, yeah, I think it was probably one of those. So if we fast forward a little bit, you know, looking into, you know, some of your later teen years and getting into, you're starting to travel for surf contests. Surfing is really starting to become something around the world where they're hosting these contests. And so maybe we could fast forward to something like, let's say South Africa or a memorable contest that, that comes to mind. What, what was that experience like actually getting into the international circuit and starting to travel and, and doing this professionally? Yeah, we didn't travel until until the very first year of pro surfing. Traveling for me was going to Maui when the waves were too big on the North Shore. We, you know, that was traveling. But in 1976 was the first year that they had the women's tour. And that was interesting. There were only six of us. And that was the traveling we did. It was hard to get sponsors. And, you know, it was just people weren't taking us seriously. But, you know, I, I was working with Randy Rarick on that. Um, and, and ended up, as you know, working with him and Fred Hemmings to form the first women's tour it, itself. But that first year was rough. It was me, Sally Prang, Jericho Poplar, Ralph Sun, Becky Benson, and Claudia Kravitz. That was it. <laughs> that was the women who went on the tour. And uh, the, the very first contest we got to was in South Africa, at least outside of Hawaii. We had surfed in contests in California through WISA and in Hawaii. And, uh, yeah, I think we traveled, you know, East Coast, Gulf Coast, West Coast. But uh, when we got there, the, the Chapstick Pro is what it was called. It was con in conjunction with the Gunston 500. And the Chapstick guys wanted to meet with us. And when they met us, they said, look, we really didn't think you girls were going to show up. So we don't have any money for your prize money. But we have this fabulous idea. They said, we, we're going to hold a nationwide raffle. And the winner gets his choice of any one of you for a date, whichever one he desires. So that's what we got offered. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, I said, no. We all said no, except one of the women said, maybe. We all said, no, we're not going to do this. So uh, they did come up with a couple hundred dollars. I guess that was our punishment, a couple hundred dollars uh, rand, I think, in South African currency. And that was our prize money, which kind of hurt because, you know, even though we had sponsors, we had to pay part of our way. 
you know, sponsors for us was like, oh, free wetsuits. We were really rolling in the dough with that, you know, and <laughs> free surfboards, you know. Yeah, and this is around the time when the men are starting to hit like thousands of dollars prize purses and really the birth of we've we've had a couple of conversations with some of the other founders of you know world champions of this time and they on the the men's circuit side do describe this is that inflection point where the prize purses became something you could live off of and that still wasn't the case here on the the women's tour it was very secondary a, a side item as you as you've described it and I, I really would love to just hear more about your what you were thinking and feeling and going through that time. It was so hard. And I'm not whining because nobody who, who surfs, no woman who surfs certainly is a whiner because, you know, you have to go through thousands and thousands of wipeouts, you know, to get where you are. But it was difficult. And it was, we always felt like we were second class. I mean, they would say, oh, well, there's a women's event. We'll, we'll take six of you and we'll do it at the end of the day when it's all blown out or if it's not good enough to have a men's contest, you know? So uh, that was a constant battle. And it, our contests were always sort of appendages to the main event, which was the men's event. We had a hard time getting sponsors to do just a women's contest. Now it happened eventually, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't there in the beginning. So as a result, we were sort of an afterthought. And it was odd for people to even conceive that we were pro athletes because they wanted to treat, treat us like, I always say they didn't know what to make of us, whether we were like a bunch of Barbie dolls or a, a pack of female mud wrestlers, you know, with our surf mob muscles. But the funny thing was we attracted more crowds than the men. So I used to say to the sponsors, look, if your idea is to get people there, we're the ones attracting them. But it still didn't work. And I remember specifically, and, and there's one newspaper article that, I don't know, people still laugh about and ask about. And that's when we were trying to get sponsors in the newspaper in the Honolulu Star Bulletin. And it took pictures of the Hawaii Women Surfing Committee. That was an organization. Believe me, it wasn't just me that found it pro-surfing. There were many of us. And I'd be happy to share those names in a minute. But this article said, uh, had a picture of me and Sally Prang, and then it interviewed a lot of the other women too. And it said, Patty and Sally are trying to find sponsors to show that women's pro surfers are not just a bunch of endowed with uh, curiosities, endowed with too many male hormones. That was wrong on so many levels, so many levels. I don't even want to go there. I think just hearing it is offensive. You know, just just putting us in that box and then and then acting as if it was hormones were wrong. I mean, all of that, you know, I can't even go there. So but this was the kind of stuff that came out and that everybody thought was cutesy and funny. So, you know, we dealt with that, but we always tried to have we were afraid to push too hard because they would say, oh, they're pushing hard. What a brute, you know. Oh, man. Well, what? so even today, you know, when I gave that speech a couple of years ago at Shack, you know, it came back to me at Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, came back to me where, where some of the older guys in the audience from the surf industry thought, said, she pushed too hard, you know, but I don't find that from the younger men. So that's really hopeful. I think the world's changing and it's changing quite a bit faster than it has in the past. But yeah, just I would encourage anybody listening to just Google that, Shaq. It's the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center 
Um, you gave that speech on June 30th, 2018. It's on YouTube. And I would encourage people to listen to that because it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And uh, in that, you talked about even some of the press that you were getting in those early days. Things like, wow, this is incredible. We've got female servers out there putting on a show and really making waves. And But wow, that's too bad. They're going to have to go back to you know the, the hot stove and the children, which is where they actually <laughs> belong. I mean, it's and that was written by a woman. That was an article written about, yeah, okay, exactly. She said, but they'll have to go back to the lonely hot stove and the children. No more surf for us, I guess, you know, after that event. <laughs> Could you talk about one of the early sponsors you got. I know what you're going to say. Are you going to say candy pants? <laughs> you mentioned it in the speech. Everybody I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Them. I know it's so absurd that people always like to ask me about it. And I understand. So, you know, that article I was just telling you about. Yeah. I only got a call from one sponsor, candy pants. They were edible underwear. I think they were red. They, I think they were cinnamon flavor. I don't know because we told them no, but. They wanted us to stand on a street corner in Waikiki. And this was, you know, the Hawaii Women Serving Hui, a very organized, serious organization. Let me tell you who was in it. Me, Jeannie Chester, Ralph's son, Sally Prang, Lynn Boyer. I mean, these are these are the women of that era. And I know I'm forgetting so many. Oh, Laola Lake. They were just, just the crux of the best women surfers in Hawaii. And at the same time, WISA was formed in California. Same thing. Just the best of the best. And, and this is what we got, candy pants. <laughs> and the joke at the Hui meetings where we would be standing on the corner saying, excuse me, Mr. and Mrs. Visitor in Waikiki, hungry. You know, <laughs> they wanted <laughs> us to stand at this display. Maybe it was at the International Marketplace. I don't know where, but I'll never know. It's incredible. And, and really, I think it's super important to talk about even even here. I mean, this is a podcast about surf parks. And so what does this have to do with surf parks? I mean, the, the answer is design. And I think if we're unaware of these issues and what's happened in the past, we're not able to correct what's going to be built in the future. And, you know, a big part of surf parks is an equalizer. And it really, you know, I'd love to spend a few minutes and talk about some of your views on surf parks in this lens because, you know, it's not a, a situation where people have to, you know, let's say paddle battle and, and fight and kind of establish dominance in the lineup to get good ways. You know, you could schedule it on your calendar and, and just show up. So, you know, that's just one example of, of the ways in which surfing in a surf park helps to make it an equalizer. And I was curious if you might share a little bit more details on one of the court rulings you've mentioned before in some of your speeches and I know in some of your in your coursework as well, which is the, the Title IX case. And I was hoping you can describe that for me. Sure. And it actually ties right into surf parks because if, if you design it and run it and market it aimed at, at young men and boys, then you'll lose half your customers. And why, what business person would want to do that? Because then what will happen, the boys will improve. And of course, the girls won't. And we'll be right back where we started for it. And that's kind of what happened in surfing, although it was more of a cultural thing that kept us back. And the women, I think, were raised not to pursue it as much back then, although I know my daughters wouldn't put up with that these days. But there is a case, uh, I think it's Cohen versus Brown University, but 
if I'm wrong, <laughs> don't you mean I haven't talked to that case in a couple of years, but it, it talks about implementing Title IX. And the university was trying to sort of weasel out of implementing Title IX. The court came back and, and, and the way they said it was, well, there's no, there's no women interested in it. So why should we have to, you know, spend half of our money, our scholarship money to give to girls when it's most of our athletes who apply are men? And the court said this, and it applies to surfing and it applies to surf parks. They said interest and ability rarely develop in a vacuum. They evolve as a function of opportunity and experience. And so, you know, if, if you're not opening up and encouraging the young girls like you are the young boys, then, you know, if you don't support, if you don't nurture it, it'll just be more of the same and it'll take another 50 years, you know, to sort of get women surfing in surf parks. But, you know, and it's intimidating, especially for young girls when there's all young men sort of taking over a place. Now, I understand they need a place <laughs> to surf as well. We all do, you know, but it's just, a, I don't know how you get past that, except that I know it's not a theme park, but I don't know any theme parks that cater to one gender. Why would they? So, you know, these things have been brainstormed, and I've often sat in on sessions over the years. And they take many, many, you know, existing customer bases and potential customer bases and just to sort of help people out of whatever mindset they're in so that you might be able to see it a different way. And I like that. I like helping, you know. I, I don't like um, screaming at people. I like just talking with them and, and just saying, you know what, have you thought about this? You know, have you thought about that? That's incredible. And do you have any thoughts that you can share? As Because some of our audience are developers and operators of surf parks and many more are, are guests and aspirational surfers. And I'd be curious to just get any thoughts you have on what are some of the principles or best practices for people, you know, including advice for myself here. Like how do we think in an inclusive way? How do we kind of practice the the allyship that we're talking about here in a way that's still authentic, still kind of gets everybody barreled and, you know, you can still have a good time, but just how do you be a little bit more aware of these things as they're coming up? Does, does anything come to mind? One of the things I talked about in that speech was um, just the things that we take for granted. And so here, let me just give you an example. Actually, this wasn't in the speech, but this will, will I remember when one of my daughters was in preschool and you know how the parents come in and they talk about what they do. Uh, and so I walked in at lunchtime and there was this, uh, this nice guy. I know his, he, he had a daughter in the class and he was writing on the board, Fireman Tim. And I said, Tim, do you think you could put firefighter up there? And he said, oh, so we have to be politically correct now. And I said, no, not at all. But if the job were firewoman, would you have applied? And Tim changed it. And my daughters heard that day, firefighter, that they didn't hear fireman. And I know our language is just for many, many centuries, you know, they would say, well, when we say he, we mean everybody. You know, even our constitution, you know, talks. But in our everyday language, and this is something that I called out, I think, WSL on on that speech, is that they would have, you know, I think I told you, like, they would have, say, the name of a contest. I think the example was the Margaret River Pro. Was that it? The Margaret River Pro. And then they'd have the Women's Margaret River Pro. They stopped doing that since then. I'm not going to ask them why, but they stopped. 
Now they have the men's event. And, you know, it's like it's like in the Olympics. They have the men's swimming and the women's swimming. They don't have the men's event. And then, I mean, they don't have the main event and then the women. You know, it's not an other. So I think you have to really start at the, it, it's not just semantics. Because people learn to think, it's, it's sort of imparting information on a subconscious level. If you will, where people accept what the norm is. And everything else is sort of a deviation from the most important thing. I still hear, hey, do you know who the world champion of surfing is? I guarantee you, you'll say the men's name. You won't say, not you personally, but people will say, they won't say, uh, yeah, it's Stephanie Gilmore. Or it's, you know, they'll say, it's Kelly Slater. That's just assumptions that we take. So if you start at that base ground level and sort of, really explore those kinds of things. That's the start, but there's so much more than that. And, you know, that's unraveling a lot of history and people get uncomfortable with that. They do. So, you know, it has to be done gracefully, but if you're building from the ground up, I don't think people will will know because you're not changing anything in a surf park. They haven't really been out there very long. Yeah, and what a, what a great time to have a conversation like this and just remind everyone to think, if you're thinking so carefully about the the type of bottom material and the type of wave you're going to build and implement and the what they're going to serve in the restaurant that's next to the surf park, like you have to also think about how do we design this to be inclusive? How do you work with your students and even your own children to think about these things in a way that's sort of because uh, it, it sounds like your the daily routine, the daily habit is is important to you and just being aware and, and thoughtful. So do you have any anything that uh, you share with your, your students or, or your children to help them check these things when they're out there in the, in the real world? I think as far as my children, they're grown up now. They're 27 and 30, and they have a high sense of self, and they're highly accomplished, and they would not put up with the kind of stuff that I put up with. They take for granted, but they also understand the history. So they're pretty awesome, my daughters. We have two daughters. One's a PhD at Harvard, I, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah, she is, she's an opera singer too. She, you know, so, and the other is a. She's only twenty-seven, and she she's a high-level business executive. She went on a full scholarship academic as a Regents and Chancellor Scholar to Berkeley. So you know, they're both they're both on their own. I've already done my teaching. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not allowed to teach them anymore, but we're friends, <laughs> very close friends. You know, you have to, you have to pull back unless they're asking for advice, right? When they're that old. Totally fair. But yeah, I think I just raised them with a sense of, yeah, as a matter of fact, kind of a thing. My students, you know, the class I teach, the gender and law class, it really causes them to sort of, and that's a class that says discrimination based on sex and sexual orientation. And this is a class that just questions where the courts themselves opened up those, questioned those norms the language and everything else. And it, and it recounts those cases. And it goes even, even historically where our courts just assume that wives, you know, got these amount of rights because they're wives. And, and, it, and, and it sort of busted open with all the, all the new cases that we study. That just sort of, you just teach the law and in parts, they learn from that, not so much me because I don't teach my own opinions. I teach the law and you can't, you can't know these cases and not come out of that class feeling that way. And you mentioned something really important, and that's diversity in race as well. 
And same with my employment discrimination law case. I mean, your jumping off point in that class is that discrimination exists, but then that class, just, just reading those cases, just takes you where you understand need the need to do things. So I think if, if surf parks are moving to inner cities, and, and to, that's a reality, and that's going to be an awesome thing, you know, to reach out to people who never saw the ocean, you know, just wouldn't have an opportunity. It's a good reminder as well for those that didn't grow up next to the coast, because that's the majority of who surfs now. How do you design a surf park to be inclusive for people that have never been to the beach or never actually seen a wave of that kind of quality? And what do you do on that situation? In that situation, people just don't have experience, you know, in coastal leisure. <laughs> so yeah, it's an important design element that I think is is really non-trivial and shouldn't be, I, I, will, I won't do justice by just trying to summarize it quickly here, but it's, it's a really good reminder to, to watch this. And, you know, maybe I, I did actually, because you mentioned, you know, your classroom and, and how those courses tend to come together. I mean, I had a quote here from your book, from a personal experience that you had that led you to write that book. And I'd be curious to hear how you, you made that transition into and then out of broadcast journalism, because it sounded like your experience was, uh, let's say, a mixed bag. So the quote here is, in 1993, CNN correspondent Patty Panicia was one of 30 million American women who suffered sex discrimination on the job. After the birth of her second child, Panicia was told by her male bureau chief, you're not fired, you're just being replaced. So drawing on that experience, tell me how you got into broadcast journalism and then your transition into law, because I think that's a be really fascinating and empowering for a lot of people to hear. Uh, what's probably more interesting to them is that surfing helped me with everything. Because once you've surfed Big Sunset, you know, it's not that scary <laughs> taking a law school exam or, or interviewing the president of the United States. Because if you screw up, you're not going to die, you know. Uh, and so nothing was scary after that. Nothing really tapped me. But um, actually, I went to law school first. And then I finished and said, oh, I don't think I want to practice law. This is not looking fun. But I took the bar in California and Hawaii. And, you know, just in case. And then I... Uh, I started at the ground up. I wanted to be a television news reporter. So I started in a little cable station, and then I moved to Santa Barbara, the ABC affiliate. Not bad, because you start in a small town, and I was lucky to get Santa Barbara. And then move up. You move up into the bigger you know, city. The more viewers, the more advertising yourselves. You know, so your most seasoned journalists are in the big city. So I moved to local news in L.A. and then to CNN, to the Los Angeles Bureau. So that was a good 10 years of my life. And then... I got pregnant. I had the audacity to get pregnant. And CNN was a different place back then. It wasn't, you know, CNN. It was uh, this tiny little cable outfit that Ted Turner had recently started in, in Georgia. And most of the men in charge, and they were all men, either came from, you know, down and around little television stations in the South or some of, you know, had failed in their other jobs if they had made it to bigger cities. So they were running CNN. So when I got pregnant, one day my story went over the satellite and I was co covering an oil spill at Huntington Beach, by the way, on that day. And the executive vice president in the newsroom said, Panicha's fat. Nice, huh? And CNN Center. And someone said, she's not fat, Ed, she's pregnant. And he said, oh, another good reporter down the drain. So long story short, after that, I came back 
I wasn't on the A-list. You know when you're not because you're not getting the stories. I had just met with them prior to that, and I was A-list. Two and a half years later, when I got pregnant with my second daughter, that was enough for them. And uh, while I was on leave, they said, uh, you they, he wrote me a, um, the mommy, what's called the mommy dumb memo. Maybe you should think about childbearing while, or maybe you should think about mommy dumb for a career. Mommy dumb, we call it the mommy dumb memo. Or, or maybe you should just write a, well, anyway, it was not a nice memo. And then I was told, one, we thought, just, I was talking with your bureau chief. The two of them thought, you know, with the baby and all, we're just going to replace you with Jim here, who's a nice guy, uh, Jim. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have any children, too. And, and it's not like my children ever interfered. As a matter of fact, I feel bad in those days. A story would break. My husband worked for CBS News. The first, like, if it was an earthquake or something or some big, whatever the story was, a plane crash, whatever, Whoever would leave the house first, the other would have to find the babysitter. And I'd go, sorry, got to go. You know, and he would, uh, you know, deal with it. So we often, you know, we, he was a, he's a great guy. We shared the child rearing. But that still wasn't enough for them. So I got fired. I hate it when that happens. And I became the poster child, unfortunately, for sex discrimination lawsuits. Because what I tried to make them understand so it was a very successful suit, and it, I got a lot of media, and I used some of the money to start a scholarship at the law school as well. I named it after myself. <laughs> Sorry. I called it the Patty Panita Law Scholarship. So it's for men or women who are parenting minor child while trying to get through law school. Wow. What a story there. And, um, I mean, it sounds like this was a big mission that you didn't know you were going to be uh, taking up, and it's uh, unfortunate you had to, but I think uh, the world is a better place for you doing that. I thank you so much for sharing all of that and bringing it home and and back to surfing. I know philanthropy is a big topic that you care a lot about as well, and and through your work at Shack, the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, I'd love to just hear more about that organization, what your role is, and how people can learn more about it. I'd love to tell you about it. And, and I want to say this, too. You know, um, they asked me why I wanted to be on that board. And I said, well, because I've spent too many years on boards with people who don't surf. You know, um, and of, of anything I've ever done in my life, surfing is the most important and it's the most me. You know, so when I had the opportunity to join this board, I jumped at it. And this year I'm co-chairman of the board, co-chair rather of the board, whatever you want to say. We are the Smithsonian of surfing. We are, we have a $4 million collection of surfboards. Uh, we're expanding. Uh, we've been going digital a lot since, um, you know, the pandemic. We're based in San Clemente, but we're about to get a new space at San, uh, Dana Point Harbor to add to that, which will be in the new redesign of the harbor. And we're a nonprofit, so we make money by raising money at fundraisers and the like. You know, we have a staff. But uh, nobody makes money being on this board. You know, we all contribute our time and our money to support it. I would just ask people to just Google it, a Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. It's pretty amazing. Well, incredible. It's an amazing place. And you'll be stoked. You know, they've got boards in there from Duke. Wow. You know, and, and we've got a timeline. And it just shows, you know, all the way back. If you want to see the way boards progress, 
That's the most impressive thing. We've got a library to die for. I think academics will probably be interested once we, we're going to make our existing space an archival research center, but we've got a photographic collection of 10,000 photos. I mean, we are the repository. That's incredible. And I think a great theme and, and message from from this conversation is like we can't build the future of surfing without looking at, at the past, good and bad. And I think, uh, yeah, thank you again for kind of helping to demonstrate that in such an authentic and, and real and important way. And uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, taking the time to speak today. It's really a pleasure to talk with you, Chris. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to see uh, what's going to happen with these uh, surf parks. Yeah, me. hey, me too. Yeah. <laughs> this will be fun. There's a few projects uh, popping up in Palm Springs that I, I think uh, will be very exciting. and uh, Someday, someday there's going to be a world champion who started surfing at a surf park. That would be very exciting and uh, not that too far away. I mean, it's very achievable based on what we're seeing and some of the, the progression already. You know, 11-year-olds, including 11-year-old young ladies – doing airs that I have never done. <laughs> That's <laughs> happening today. So imagine in a few years as surfing enters the Olympics and we get a few of those under our belt. I mean, it's uh, this is a whole new world. And so I'm really excited to uh, make sure it's done and thought of in an inclusive way. So thank you again. And we'll speak again soon. Sounds great. Hey everyone, here's Chris again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For those of you who want more information on surf parks and the topics covered in these episodes, Surf Park Central's Insider Membership might be for you. Insiders are people serious about surf parks and the organizations they represent. You can join Insiders for a monthly membership fee and rewatch all the surf park summits that have ever happened. You can get transcripts, access to research reports and white papers, even see webinars with special guests like those who visit us on this podcast. So check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about this exclusive professional community for surf parks. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Thanks for listening, guys. This is Chris Klusner again, just with a few last-minute thoughts. Please do check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com, to subscribe to our newsletter and get exclusive updates from your local surf parks and out-of-ocean surfing experiences near you. You can also learn more about our sponsors and the incredible guests we host on the show, you can also access show notes and links. Anything that's covered in the podcast will be featured on the website. Again, it's beyondoceanpodcast.com. Check it out. <laughs>